Okay, good morning. So this is the last of uh, the third of a three-part series. I think you actually both have been here for, for, for both of those. Um, just to quickly review, it's been a few weeks, and then we'll, I wanted to, to move forward. This actually will correlate a bit with what uh, you were just saying about last night's uh, annual lecture with uh, Wishmul Rogoda. Um, and we were discussing the Inu Yim, the afflictions, right, uh, or the self-denials of Yom Kippur. So if you remember, just to quickly catch us up, in the, the first um, session a couple of weeks ago, we just inquired as to the meaning of the term Inoi, um, of that root, uh, in its various conjugations in the Bible, in Tanakh. Um, and uh, eventually noted the way that it is interpreted um, in the rabbinic tradition, uh, though the roots for that interpretation, certainly in terms of uh, fasting, is you know precedes the rabbinic tradition in terms of Second Temple literature. Um, but certainly by the time we get to the rabbis, um, it's clear that we understand the Inuyim to be a refraining from the five slash six Inuyim of eating. Depends if we count eating and drinking as one or two. That's a question in the Gemara actually. Uh, eating, drinking, you know, anointing, washing, um, uh, intercourse, and shoes, which you're pointing to, correct. Uh, leather, leather, shoes, or leather shoes, that's actually a whole other thing. I said shoes, or leather shoes, what, the, what that's about, but we won't do that today. Um, that's what we did in the first session, and we, as we were doing that, we were sort of inquiring what Inoi might be about, and we noted the way that Inoi is being with Nasho Techem, um, is framed, that is conjugated as a positive verb, though it is understood by, ben- by the Benedictian to be um, a Shebaal Tase, um, a not doing, and we, but we noted that throughout sort of history, uh, sort of Jewish history, uh, rabbinic history, there's been, there have been customs uh, of the Jewish people that pop up that are, people engage in positive uh, sort of inoyim, or as positive as you can do a negative action is to say staring at a table full of food, etc. Not, not, not to even mention the really positive, meaning positive in the sense of kumbase, active things like self-flagellation, etc. Of course. Okay, and then the last last session we um, we took a look at two different framings for the purpose of the Inuyim, um, what they're about. One, the first emerged um, out of a close reading of Maimonides where Rambam, um, and this is a brisker reading of Maimonides, a tradition of the Salvagic family, where Maimonides talks about the Inuyim as a form of shvita, as a form of resting, shvitata sor, um, resting on the 10th, resting a Shabbat, Shabbaton. Um, and we sort of unpacked a bit what it might both mean, like cognitively, like they say, you know, intellectually, uh, textually, and also existentially what it might mean in terms of practice to think about the Inuyim as a not doing, as a broader Shabbat. A Shabbat not just from Malacha, but not only, but also a Shabbat from all these other activities as well. It's a stepping back from the world, um, which has a very different feel, I think, than afflicting. Um, that's a different type of framing entirely. That was one, that was sort of one major framing we offered. And the second major framing we offered and we spent a bit of time on was the framing of the Inuyim as a return to the desert the Inuyim as an attempt to um, uh, connect with the Man experience. We'll come back to that today, but we noted that the Gemara has an extended Agadah um, about the Man, um, and why it's talking about the Man, about uh, the Slav, the fowl, and actually the Garden of Eden, and a whole bunch of things happening in the desert, right, right there as it's talking about what Inuyim means. And uh, the argument we made was that that's not coincidental, it's not just... Um, it's not just sort of a, uh, 
a non sequitur in the Gemara, but rather the Gemara is making the almost explicit, but basically implicit claim that the Inuyim are an attempt to tap into a man mana type of experience, to say an experience of dependence, an experience of um, vulnerability, um, and um, a type of experience, type of dependence of vulnerability, which hopefully is ennobling. And that we look at in the Gemara. Uh, one, one very striking passage in the Gemara where the Gemara talks about um, well maybe I'll say two and then we'll, then we'll move forward for today two passages to remind us was um, one reading of what the Enoi of the Man was was that um, you have to learn to it's that Enodoma Mishish lo Papa Salo lo Papa Salo that someone who doesn't have bread in their basket is to say doesn't have assets so that they can sort of accrue um, if they can stay, store up, is it's a different experience than eating when you, when, you, when you are not really dependent, you know, on your daily bread. You're not going table, you know, uh, meal to meal. Um, and that was sort of the experience of the man. That's the quintessence of the man is that which only comes exactly the right amount and you can't store it up, etc. So you're utterly dependent. You're being fed on the one hand, but you're dependent, right? Um, cuts both ways. But the second really interesting thing I thought in that Gemara, there's a lot of interesting things in that Gemara, um, but the second point I want to highlight right now was the piece where the Gemara describes how the man um, functioned as a form of a form of litmus test for people's ethical standards. Um, how so? Because we know that the man will only fall uh, in proportion to the right the amount of people in a household. For example, there's five people in the house, and you'll get you know five units of man, and not six, and not four. Um, and therefore, if there's ever any debate as to, you know, how many people are in a household, uh, they talk about abadim in that context, servants, whose servant, who, who does this place belong to? Two people are arguing, says the Gemara. They say, no, it's my servant, it's my servant, you stole my servant, maybe slave is a better term in this context, it's a more accurate term in this context. So, so Moshe said, let's wait till the morning and we'll see whoever gets the more man by their tent, that means that the servant actually, actually belongs um, in that household. Um, in that sense, like the man was, I think that's a midrash picking up on uh, the man's um, sort of, uh, I guess you'd say, well, here it's functioning as like a piece of evidence, right? evidentiary, but uh, uh, status. But I think also it functions as, as a pedagogic or a didactic tool, right? Uh, it's something which allows you to um, um, have to live honestly with the others, etc. So and this is, and that's part of a broad tradition. The Ramban picks up on this in his commentary on the Chumash. Um, on the broad tradition of how the desert experience might have its own Torah, a Torah of, uh, of, uh, Torah of dealing with uh, close, con- close contact with a lot of other people, with not a lot of assets, and seeing if you can still live with honesty, with, with due boundaries, with but yet interaction. It's a delicate dance, as we all know, from economics, um, from the real world, which uh, I think will probably be perennial to the human condition, which is, you know, what is it? Uh, you know, scarcity of resources and uh, demand, nonetheless. And what do you do with that? Okay. So for today, what I'd like to do is uh, offer um, another way. I'm not, sure it's, I'm not sure it's another two ways, another one way. You'll see, but it correlates to what we said earlier. Another way of thinking about the Inuyim, and uh, hopefully this will leave us with like a, a bunch of images in our in our sort of uh, mental toolbox or uh, existential toolbox. Uh, as we move forward till tomorrow night already, which is Kol Nidre night, which is Yom Kippur. Um, and that, that goes as follows. Um, there is, you might know this, um, there's a, there's a, there is um, 
a tradition that thinks of, um, and I'm going to read and translate as we go, there's a tradition um, that thinks of um, our experience of Yom Kippur, uh, specifically actually because of the Inuyim, but beyond the Inuyim, as an experience where we attempt to um, model ourselves after angels, after Malachim. This is a tradition which um, which has many manifestations, uh, or several manifestations. Um, the, what I give you next right now from Pirkei de Rebbe Leyezer, in the 40, uh, here it's actually in the 46th chapter, in this printing, I've seen it referenced in the 45th as well. Um, the Pirkei de Leyezer, um, the Midrash, uh, says something very interesting so about, about uh, Israel's uh, attempt to, uh, to be angelic on Yom Kippur. Um, and I'd like to take, take, take a look at that uh, with you. But before I do, let me just ask you, um, does, that ring, does that resonate both in terms of, does that make sense to you in terms of like the experience that trying to be angelic and along with that, like what, what, what practices can you think of off the top of your head right, that might be, oh, this is Israel trying to see themselves as angels or act as angels on Yom Kippur. Anything come to mind? Okay, so other, yeah, good. So we'll come to that in a moment. So one of the prominent ones we know is that during the whole year, this comes from a Madrashic tradition, the whole year we insert this line between Shema Yisrael Adonai and Adonai Achad and Adonai and the Shema we insert Baruch Shem Kavod Machutol Ed, which is an angelic, uh, an angelic cry, right? Blessed be Shem Kavodo. Um, um, forever um, from his place in Como um, forever and ever um, and this cry is usually uh, inserted quietly uh, during the during the year um, in Yom Kippur we recite it you know B'Kol Ram the whole, Tibor, the whole congregation recites it out loud um, and this is understood to uh, be to do with the angels we'll come to this in a, in a little bit but just to explain what that was going on here, that the tradition has it that since Moshe basically, when Moshe heard the angels saying that, Moshe, as it were, stole that cry from the angels and brought it down to humanity. Um, so therefore, we don't say it out loud normally, right? But on Yom Kippur, when we are, ourselves are attempting to imitate the angels, we are angels, we are angelic, or we're aspiring to be as such, so then we recite it out loud. Okay, so that's, that's, one, that's one thing. So if you think about it, and Think about it. You know, besides eating and drinking, we'll come to that in a moment. That that, that that's clear. This notion that like the angels don't quite eat, although they sort of eat. And we'll see that. But um, but also uh, think about you know the wearing of white is understood to, to go in two different directions, right? Uh, something that's exactly right. Something about something about it as a statement of immortality, just to say that we're clothed in some sort of uh, clothing which we assume the angels um, might wear. Um, at the same time, as as, as Suri notes, right? We also others will explain it in terms of the kittel, uh, the kittel as uh, the white garment, um, as um, basically the garment of burial, of burial, and the burial shrouds uh, are white um, traditionally, um, and as such, uh, we're actually reminded of our own mortality. So it's one of those things where it cuts in two directions at the same exact time. Are we trying to be white and therefore immortal, or white and therefore extremely mortal? Uh, cuts in different, different directions. Um, others that we'll see, um, well, may I'll, may I'll, I'll leave that for now, and we'll see others as we go. So if you look at this midrash, this is Perkid there, and on the, over here on the bottom, basically, there, this whole passage is basically about, about angels um, and, and revelation. Um, 
had this notion that uh, that when Moshe goes up to when Moses goes up to heaven, so he um, encounters angels, and in some midrashim you'll see we're going to start from the bottom. But I'm just sort of catching up to what, where we are in the book. Um, you know, in some traditions where the angels you know, are uh, are sort of upset that Moshe, this mortal, has has um, trespassed into divine territory and also attempts even to take this Torah, which precedes humanity by so many by so many years. That is to say, um, is something so infinite and something so much beyond. Um, the human condition, and then Moshe has to sort of argue, as you may know, Mizuka Marot, uh, in various places in Midrashim, Moshe has to argue and explain how the Torah actually only makes sense as a document um, which is uh, meant to guide humans, Zafka, as opposed to angels, right? Only humans are the ones who are living in a world post-Eden of temptation, of, of, of uh, trespass, of, of sin, and uh, of labor, of various things, right? It only would make sense for humans um, to do this. And in this one, Josh, actually over here, um, it does talk about Moshe sort of capturing uh, some sort of booty from the angels, but it also talks about the angels actually, you know, at some point actually giving Moshe, um, you know, Moshe uh, gifts, etc. So I hear it's a different tone, at least in this passage. In any event, so we start from the bottom just to... Um, 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 it basically, the Midrash, Midrash is saying uh, how here, Midrash is saying how um, you know Moshe goes up to heaven, and this is in terms of tradition that that the second luchot are given on Yom Kippur. But Moshe, anyway, it says here that Moshe goes up to heaven, and he's learning Torah, and it says this is four lines from the bottom. Viarad asor lachodesh, and I'm on the third line. He came down on the asor lachodesh hashvi'i. He came down on the tenth of the seventh month. That is to say, Yom Kippur. Moshe comes down and gives the Torah. Uh, to Israel in on that day on Yom Kippur. So there's something very a tight uh, connection here between both Revelation and giving of the Torah um, and and Yom Kippur, which is very very important. Um, and therefore, says Rabbi Zechariah, and this is the point I really want to pick up. Says Rabbi Zechariah, Torah. So they're reading the Torah, and lo and behold, they discover that there's a mitzvah about that very day in which they're receiving the Torah. Which Moshe has now come down, and they find, oh, it says on this day, which is to say the uh, the 10th of the seventh month, you're supposed to engage in Inuy. So they discover the halacha of uh, of Inuy, which you know they're looking around like, oh, that's today, that's in Yana Diyoma, as we'd say, that's actually the halacha of today. Bo- it's the whole program. It's interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that day, they uh, blew a shofar on the whole camp. It's very interesting, Midrash here. In order that people should know to fast. Everyone, everyone. Here says even katan. What do they mean? A katan, exactly. The two matter is that there are, there are uh, ancient traditions about katanim fasting, about minors fasting on Yom Kippur, actually minors engaging in other mitzvot as well, and maybe this is sort of a, a fossil of that, uh, of that reading of, uh, of halacha, or maybe katan here means, you know, not exactly a katan, or maybe it means close to, you know, whatever it means, close to bar mitzvah, bar bat mitzvah, uh, in any event. Both in this world and the next world, which is kind of an interesting idea we haven't really encountered yet so far, but nonetheless is interesting. Um, as it says, it's Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of Sabbath. Now, when we looked at Sabbath of Sabbath before in the Midrash and the Rambam, the Maimonides, we noted he read it as, the Midrash reads it as, you know, Shabbat 
with regards to some of the, you know, some things, whether malacha or, you know, not to do labor or not to eat and drink, um, and Shabbaton with regards to the other Inuyim. But here we say that as Shabbat, Holam Hazem, it is Shabbat for this world, and it's Shabbaton, it's an ultimate Shabbat. Um, in the sense that it, it uh, even has effect the olam haba in the world to come, and indeed, afilu kol hamoadim ovrim biyom kippurim ovrim enu over, and even if eventually all of the holidays will go away, yom kippur will not uh, go away. This to say, it will not expire because yom kippurim is mechaper on kalut hamurot, etc., etc. Okay. So, we're very interesting midrash about, you know, noting the tight connection between giving of the Torah and Yom Kippur. Now, <coughs> if you skip ahead to where I bracketed it off, here's where we get to our Inuyim, and I think a very um, interesting source about the Inuyim, which the Rishonim picked up on, by the way. This is, you, you see Rishonim setting this midrash, and they were very, it seems that different Rishonim, you know, sort of liked it very much. Ra'ah Satan, the Satan sees. He looks around, he says, there's no sins of Israel on the day of Yom Kippur. They are without sin, apparently. They have been uh, atoned for, they've been cleansed. So, Satan says as follows, Amar Lefanav. Satan says as follows, he says, Rebono Shalalam, Master of the World. Ma Malachai Hasharet, In Lehem Kvitsin. So he says, Bono Shalom, Master of the World, just like angels who we see around here, or the ministering angels, have no um, basically knees, that is to say, they can't, uh, they can't bend their legs, um, and as such they have to be standing all the time. There is a notion, we see this throughout, I, I believe we see it throughout the ancient Near East, but certainly in, in our biblical and traditions, traditions, the notion that Malachi Shorit have to be standing. That's what you do. In Yeshiva in the heavenly abode. There's no sitting, says the Gemara, uh, in the heavenly abode. Um, we actually have this in our liturgy, you know, um, in Asher Yatsar. Um, you know that if we've, you know, seen our bracha after the bathroom, that if we know that if you had you closed or open any orifices that don't belong that way, then we will to stand in front of you. And even the Amidah, so this notion that, like, you know, that in the divine presence one stands. Um, and uh, that bracha is framing us as, as ministering angels, where we're serving God, and therefore we know that we try to stand, but to stand in front of means to serve, um, which is interesting. So we, so we say, just so, so too, just like angels don't have knees, but if you don't have knees, you can't sit, because very, well, you could, I guess, but it's very hard. So, so too Israel stands on, stands on their feet all on Yom Kippur. Um, there is a tradition to stand uh, throughout, uh, you find this in the halakha codes also, to stand the whole Yom Kippur. Uh, those who have this tradition. Um, and uh, Satan is noticing that. He says further, just like the angels, the ministering angels have no do not eat and drink so to Israel does not eat or drink on Yom Kippur. And this is a very interesting one. Just like ministering angels uh, with regards to them, peace, uh, act as an intermediary between them. I think that means to say that they are peaceful, right? That they coexist peacefully. So to Israel, um, peace, um, you know, stands between them. There's peace between them on on Yom, Yom Kippur. This notion, by the way, of peace uh, abiding among the angels 
I think we also see in our liturgy in various places, for example, it's brought out just a prominent example um, in the uh, in the Birchot Kriyashma in the morning, at least, right, where we where the list of liturgy has is ascribing the the kedusha, the, the the sanctification, the angels uh, say uh, to God. So it makes a point of saying Kula Mahovim, they're all beloved. Um, and they're all sort of focused and mighty, etc., etc., and holy. And they all give each other a shoot, and they all give each other permission with like due reverence and you know with pleasantry, etc., to be makdish God, um, to sanctify to sanctify God. Um, um, so this notion that um, you know uh, this notion that the angels are coexisting peacefully, each with their own task, albeit but nonetheless you know coexisting. Um, is apparently, according to this midrash, the model for the Shalom of Israel on Yom Kippur. Now, what's the Shalom of Israel that he's talking on Yom Kippur? Could be a lot of different things, but um, but um, in some of the in some of the uh, of the literature, um, including the you know Asher, Rabbi Asher Bar the Rush, the early Ashkenazic or medieval Ashkenazic authority. Um, What's being referred to apparently is the well-known tradition uh, to, or actually halacha, to um, ask forgiveness from each other uh, before Yom Kippur. This is already from the Mishnah. Um, the Yom Kippur cannot cannot uh, cannot uh, be mechaper um, for sins uh, between uh, humans and humans until people have tried to, you know, ask forgiveness one one from the other. Um, and the rush. Um, actually, in this source, I'm not sure if we don't have to read it in silence necessarily, but if you just turn to this page, which is in a few pages later, this is just what I, what I was able to print out quickly, but the photocopy, but this is from the Rush in the back of Yoma, uh, Suman Chaftal 24, the Rush, when he's in the Asher Barachil, when he is, you know, sort of writing a uh, sort of halachic uh, summary, if you will, of uh, the traditions coming off of that part of uh, chapter Yoma. So he says, uh, as follows in 24 um, Kippurim, a person has to make sure on Erevim Kippur that will be by the way tonight and tomorrow already so this is very much relevant to try to appease people who hold some sort of enmity towards them say to make peace to seek you know to fix uh, broken relationships or relationships that are a little bit broken and he cites a couple examples as we see in the Gemara of Amorayim going out of their way Right on Arab Yom Kippur, to you know, many many times even to try to uh, achieve uh, redress, to try to um, try to make uh, you know leave Koshal Shalim and to make everybody um, Shalim one with the other, to make everybody at whole peace with each other. And he says, I'm reading a couple of lines later, Kedi Isa Bepirka Eliezer, four or five lines later, as it says in the passage just read, Ra'as Samael. It's another name for so sort of some sort of demonic. Uh, Demonic being, right? Satan, basically. Shalom atachet b'Israel. I mean, we keep our rim, etc., etc. Right? Um, and uh, and uh, he cites. Um, actually, this this text is a little bit different because it has an extra line. But anyway, he says, "Mamalachay asharik shalom b'nehem after we keep our rim kain." Mamalachay asharik nekiim mikochet after Israel came and we keep our rim. He cites a midrash. So it seems that um, he that 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 the Rosh is understanding this tradition of trying to achieve uh, shalom one between the other 
uh, on Erev Yom Kippur, the day of Yom Kippur, actually going out of our way to think about who we've wronged, um, or not even who we've wronged, but who there's brokenness between, and to try to repair that somehow on Erev Yom Kippur. Um, how to do that, of course, is quite tricky. Requires real preparation, but in any event, um, the Rush very interestingly understands that as emerging. Actually, this Majash understands that as emerging from our attempt to be like angels. I think that's that's, that's pretty interesting. In other words, what, what it means to be angelic is to be, to a certain extent, it seems sort of disembodied to a certain extent. There's no eating and drinking, right? Um, maybe there's no sort of dependence on external things because we're uh, external nourishment because we're just in a different mode entirely, but also um, to be ready to serve, okay? Uh, and thirdly, to have shalom, have shalom between one and the other, and that's what it means to sort of be angelic and people are a very interesting combination of, uh, of practices. Um, so that's a framing which I actually hadn't heard before I saw these sources. So I think it's very interesting to bring this all together um, to think about that's what we're trying to do over the next 48 hours, essentially, right? To sort of aspire to um, that type of way of walking in the world, um, which is essentially that of the malach. Right? If you think of the malach, you see how some of them come together. After all, that if one if one is there to serve and is standing in service, um, then um, hopefully one's ego essentially will be in a different place. Um, uh, one will be sort of service-centered rather than eye-centered uh, in a way, um, and that might actually help Shalom, right, uh, one would hope. Um, so I think that, that that's pretty interesting. Yeah? No, just not only does it say, you know, but it says, Kulam ke'achad onim Very nice, right? Ke'achad exactly. They say it together, and unification, ke'ishachad v'leivachad, as Majah says about Sinai, very nice. Thank you. Um, he actually goes on to say something. He says, he says, he says, he says so because of this Midrash, I have to say, I don't know if it's because of this Midrash or because of a similar notion emerging from this Midrash or who knows what, but he says, out of this Midrash, Ashkenaz, he says, a lot of people in Ashkenaz, remember that he moved, by the way, from Ashkenaz to Spain, so, anyway, he says in Ashkenaz, in the German lens, um, so I stand all day standing up, you know, so I just think it's just nice that he sort of sees this midrash as like a very important source in terms of practice. And look at this next line. I don't know. This is very interesting. He says, he says uh, they have also um, had the custom to go to the mikvah on Arab Yom Kippur. Right? This is this we know that even for uh, people who don't normally, you know, go to the mikvah, um, before the Yemenoreim, um, and he talks about here about Erev Yom Kippur, um, there is a custom for many to go to the mikvah anyway. Now what is that about exactly? So there's actually a halachic debate about what that's about, and do you make a bracha? Is there a blessing made on that, on that immersion? Because we know that, for example, when one, ha- when one has what's called tefillah mitzvah, when one goes to the mikvah, let's say uh, nida, for example, so there would be a bracha. But, um, but for uh, this Immersion where there's no real mandate and there's no real Talmudic, you know, there's no real, you know, Talmudic mandate to do so. So there's a question: Do they have a bracha? Now, bracha. A, the fact that even people thought you wouldn't make a bracha is actually very, very interesting. Actually, I think intuitively we might think, I don't know, it's a custom. Well, that's a whole question about: Do we make brachot and brachot and customs? Right? Can we say? Okay, that's a whole issue. I don't get into. But but he just says very simply. Um, and he, I mean, first of all, he, I think he sort of weighs in saying, uh, you know, not to make a bracha, but um, 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 he says, but, so towards the second to last line, Nahagu ha'olam, 
Uh, he means talking here by, uh, by the world. He means the men folk. <laughs> to purify themselves from the you know, impurity which emerges out of seminal emissions. He's talking about Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 15, um, the uh, impurity of the Tum'ah of the uh, Baal Keri, of uh, someone who is emitted Shechvat Zerah of, of semen. Um, so it's sort of like there's sort of like actually it's sort of a tuma associated impurity, a Levitical impurity, um, which one is trying to redress through emerging emerging Kippur. But then he says the Samchu Amidrash Tanchuma Parshat Etchanan. But they're relying on the Midrash Tanchuma and Parshat Etchanan. Now we were talking about a different Midrash, but nonetheless, same idea. The Biyom Kippurim Shehem Nekiim Kumalachay Asharet. So. That, that every Kippur we go to the mikvah in order to be clean like the angels. So it's a very different thing. Is it that we're trying not to be just tameh, or maybe the two go together? Right? But this, again, you think that the cousin going to the mikvah also, right, is already about is already meant to be an angelic type of thing. So we see actually, first of all, a bunch of things coming together in terms of our attempt to be angelic in Kippur, and that's what we're trying to do. Um, and also the extension that of that to you know Arab Kippur, Arab Kippur as well. And if you remember from a couple from several weeks ago at this point, right, there's a lot of things that we extend from Yom Kippur to Arab Yom Kippur because that's which textually, if you want to talk about the textual um, locus, a textual root, you know, for that notion, you know, on the ninth from Erevat Erev, on the ninth already you're supposed to be, you know, engaging in um, engaging somehow in uh, Yom Kippur activities. So how we understand that exactly halakhically, we talked about a few weeks ago, which is very interesting about, you know, um, maybe eating, the eating and drinking on the 9th is already somehow akin to or leading to or facilitating the fasting on the 10th, and maybe uh, you're supposed to actually um, take on Yom Kippur a little bit early until the 9th, to Yom Kippur, to add to the, to extend the holiness of Yom Kippur earlier, at least there are some of the practices early in Yom Kippur, but here we also see that there are practices on Erevim Kippur, which in a way is Hachshon Mitzvah, to say that it prepares you uh, for Yom Kippur. So this way you have peace so that you'll be able to achieve atonement and you're clean so you can be... But also, um, you're already doing Yom Kippur stuff, which I think is kind of, kind of uh, powerful and intriguing, um, but in a, in, a different, in a different way. You're not doing the same stuff necessarily. You're doing different stuff. Right? So it's different Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur comes out in different manners. I remind you of Rabbeinu Yonah, the great medieval Spanish sage who um, argued um, that maybe the eating and drinking of Arab Yom Kippur is kind of the expression of the, you know, the honor, the way we normally honor holidays, which is to feast and to enjoy ourselves physically. And we can't do that in Yom Kippur technically because it's not, it's not, not about that. <laughs> we did the day before. Very interesting reading. Um, so, but uh, the, it's got a lot of interesting sources here. But the, the main point is that um, we see a framing here so far of um, what we're doing on Erev Yom Kippur, um, and actually Yom Kippur also as an attempt to be angelic, which is which is interesting. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, so I want to say one more one more thing, which is that um, the Majrash actually goes on. Um, just, I'll give you I'll give you more as well. Um, but um, but what I want to you know, after I take serious comment what I'm gonna, or question or whatever um, what I want to try to argue and others have argued this as well is that there, there, and there's a bit of a tension here um, because so far we've outlined the ways in which we're angelic but even in this midrash um, where we left off um, where we left off in the midrash 
you know, remember that Satan, right, was the one who was saying this. And it sounds like he's kind of accusing the people, right, if you will. It doesn't sound like he's merely praising them. So, um, so it doesn't sound like he's merely, yeah, it doesn't sound like he's merely, um, he's merely praising them. It's not normally his role. Um, and indeed, the Midrash says, the second, second line there where we left off, um, first word on the first words on the page of Malachi Hasharit, right? Just like they have Shalom, so to Israel has Shalom. It's a Kadosh Barachush, Shamea or Shema, Atidatan, Shal Yisrael Minakate Gorshalahem, and God hears. And I think what he means is hears sort of the what they will do, right? Like the forecast, right, of Israel from um, their prosecutor, meaning Satan. And goes forward and is kaperam as beach and uh, and therefore um, um, atones for the altar and for the kohanim and for the everybody etc etc etc. Now, I have to admit to myself, maybe you'll be able to help me with this. It's a little enigmatic to me. That is to say, how is this forecast actually a prosecution? It sounds actually like like a lauding of Israel. It's like look how great they are. They're like they're angelic. <coughs> What do you think? It's almost, um, by saying that, it's implying that this can't last. That it's, you know, here's, I see one point where they're not sinning, but that can't possibly be right. going to. From hearing that, you hear that, that's very, that's very nice. And I would focus on that, Tita Tantra Israel here, so like, what they will do out the day after Yom Kippur. It's like Rabbi Silver likes to say, the most important day of the Jewish year is not Yom Kippur, it's the day after Yom Kippur. Right, it's a very sort of halachic way of thinking. Right? It's about day to day, what you do every day. And it's a very, very, very important point to, to keep in mind. Half of us have headaches the next day, so it's hard to be uh, in a good mood. But, uh, but then again, we've just achieved atonement and purity and <laughs> shalom. So I guess you could be good mood that way. Um, so I think, yes, so Sirius is something very nice, which is that, you know, it's, it's the, what the implicit condemnation of Israel is like today, they're like this, but not. I also wonder another way of looking at it, I'd actually. Just like an, like an equally plausible inami, you know, ibaidema. I don't know which one is more better reading, which is um, that the satan is being a little bit tongue in cheek, meaning he's by even on Yom Kippur proper, he says, "Look at these guys. They're trying to be angelic by, you know, oh, they don't eat and drink. How cute. They don't sit. They don't sit. How cute. They they, they ask for appeasement. You forgive me. The day before, right? They go to the. He doesn't say this, but they go to the mikvah. Very nice, but." Look at them. You think these are angels? These are humans, right? Um, and that's the implicit condemnation. You can you can you can try to like sort of dress up. You know, you can try to what is it? You know, look like a duck and walk quack like a duck, and but you're not necessarily a duck. You know, you know? and that, that's very clear to all of us. And we all know that actually. I mean, that's actually the great um, the great fear. Um, of uh, play acting, right? That we try to do this ritual, we try to act like angels. We all know that we're not angels, and what that's what, what is that about exactly? So that's the implicit condemnation, perhaps, um, of the Satan here. To which God says, "You know what? I, you're right. I have to be mechaper. I'm going to have to step in um, and, and, and try to atone because they are. At the end of the day, they are humans. They are humans. Um, maybe they're a little bit less than the angels, but they're not angels." They can never actually be fully angelic. Um, and that point, actually, that you know. We, we are talking a lot about being like angelic, but we're not. <laughs> um, um, I, you, you certainly see um, in the liturgy in a very powerful way. And I wanted to just take a few moments to take a look at a piyut with you, or just the beginning of the piyut at least, which is not said in all congregations. Um, it's not even printed in all machsorim. You have it in the next pages in your, in your booklet. Um, but in from Musaf, 
the repetition of the Musaf service, which is the central prayer, probably, of Yom Kippur, um, as it contains the Avodah service, uh, description of the uh, of the what happens in the cultic rite in the temple, um, and um, this is coming up in the in the liturgy. This is. Um, I believe um, after yeah after a series of team which are more well known Imru Lelokim uh, etc where um, you know we're all praising uh, praising you know, praising God and it's um, I believe I have to admit I forget right now I think I believe it's leading up to the kedusha um, that it's not uh, after the kedusha but I'm, I, I'm actually forgetting at this very moment I think that's from I think it's right before the kedusha and in any event so it says here you know uvechen is a bunch of uh, the most of services uh, in the team you know there's a bunch of them which are uvechen and therefore oh, there you go right thank you yeah, there you go so uvechen lenora alehem I'm not used to this pio because it's not really what I'm used to davening but uvechen lenora alehem beimay yaritzu a lot of you know you'll see a lot of pio something, right? And therefore, um, Sasha and Rosh Hashanah as well. But uh, and therefore, in awe, they shall revere the one whose fear is upon them. And this is a very interesting uh, piyud. Watch what happens here. This piyud, um, as opposed to piyutim, as opposed to the tradition we've just said, we've articulated so far, which actually frames you know Israel as angels. The whole point of this piyud is that we're not angels, and nonetheless, or maybe. Specifically, because of that, God desires our praise. It's a very interesting piece. So it says, for example, um, He translates here as, "Even though your dread is, with regards to your ema, your dread is upon the faithful angels, abire omet, the mighty heavenly hosts, gevlule kerach, created of ice and mixed with fire, umarachali hem, and your fears upon them. Nonetheless, va'avita tehila. Yet you desire praise from us humans." From those formed from earth, from Migare Gai, from those who, who, who dwell in the valley, um, is to say, probably the existential valley, right? Or, certainly, you don't live on high, but uh, I mean, the Gates Almavet is maybe the, re- the reference here, who live in mortality. Midlule Foal, whose actions are meager, Midale Maas, good deeds are few, or deeds in general are few in number, right? Behid, and that is your praise. Your praise, Behitilatecha, you see how it goes, right? Vavita Asher Imatecha. Right, your ema, uh, you know, umarachalehem, ema and yira, right, your fear and your dread or your your reverence, and then here you require, you desire praise, and that is your praise. So we're, we're praising God by saying, you know what's so great about you, God, the fact that you have these angels up there and they're amazing, and yet who do you want? Who's praising? You want actually us who are so human. You want those who are all too human. Um, quick footnote by the way but I just can't resist from a few weeks ago we mentioned the whole thing about the man I've said this earlier today so this line over here in the first line up here in the first uh, stanza um, you require, you want, your dread is upon the faithful angels and the mighty heavenly host this notion of angels called abirim at least one place maybe the only place where uh, biblically where they're called abirim when we think of the angels as abirim is in Psalms uh, 75, page 1504. I'll go over to you. I believe it's Psalm 1. Let me wait a second. Uh, Psalm. Maybe it's Ein Chet. Wait one second. Sorry. Sorry. 78. I read it. <laughs> it's Ein Chet. Page 1509. 
And this is a psalm uh, describing what happens in the desert. A whole, leaving Egypt a whole long description. Very interesting psalm. So I look at it one, at some point. Anyway, it says here that you know you, you command in verse 23. Um, you have uh, he commanded the skies above. He opens the doors of heaven. He rains manna upon them. Right? lamo, and he gave you know, heavenly grain to them. Verse 25. So Psalm 78, verse 25. Lechem ish, He, each man ate. So they translate here in JPS as a hero's meal. Lechem abirim. He sent them provision in plenty, describing the man. Lechem abirim. But interestingly, in our Agadah, this is where I got, I guess, Ayin Hay from, from 75b in Yoma, my eyes deceived me, um, uh, 75b in Yoma, when they're talking about the man, so guess what it says? We have, it says, um, it says, Tanu Rabbanan, Lechem abirim achal ish. I didn't get into this to you in the printout. Lechem abirim achal ish. The bread of the they have here the heroes. Lechem shemalachay hasharet ochlinoto debir bekiva. Kiva taught this was the food, the bread which shemalachay hasharet the ministering angels eat. I.e. abirim or Kiva's reading as angels, not as heroes. Right? It's angelic food, which makes sense in the context because it's coming down from heaven. Right, it's food coming down from heaven, so God is giving them the angelic food. And actually, there in the Midrash, there in the Gemara, they, they, they yell at Rekiva. They say, Rekiva, you think, you think angels eat? Right? They don't eat. Um, you know, and after all, you know, Moshe says when he goes up to heaven, I didn't eat and didn't drink. Wasn't he being angelic? Very interesting, right? Or trying to be angelic. Wasn't that the whole point that I, up there I can't eat and drink because no one eats up there? So what does Lechem Abirim mean? They give a different reading of, of it. It's to say it's a type of food which is totally absorbed into the limbs. Ivarim, um, Ivarim, right? All of the limbs are absorbed, and I guess no waste, so it's a pure food. Okay, that's a different tradition. But this tradition of Rabbi Akiva, I think, is really interesting that the man is Lechem Abirim. The man is, in a way, angelic food. So to the extent of the Inuyim, A equals B equals C, since we've argued the Inuyim equals eating the man, and the man equals angelic food, or angel's cake, I guess we'd say, angel's food cake, right? So therefore, um, the man equals angels, you know, angelic being also, and it all comes together in that, in that sense. Yeah, and it circles back to what you said about how many people have the lavan and the white. Very beautiful, right? Thank you very much, right? The lavan, the whiteness of it, right? The, the purity, the whiteness, the, the, the big day kahuna, the priesthood, it all comes together. And I don't know if I'm overreading here, but in this piyut, but uh, I'd rather overread than underread. Um, and uh, <coughs> here in this reading of Ba'abire Omex, right? I wonder if the reference to Abirei here, the, the, the Abirim, meaning the calling the angels the Abirim, um, comes from this psalm. And if it does, if it's somewhat influenced by the reading of this psalm as being by Malachi Sharit from this very bright that we just read in Yoma, this very text from Yoma um, about the man, and somehow, either, either consciously or, or, or maybe subconsciously, the Paitan, the poet here, is noting that the angels are exist in a totally different manner than us, right? They, we eat and drink, but they are actually you know, eating lechem of the abirim, lechem abirim. Um, that's just a little footnote. But the main point here is that the point of this piyot is to, is to not to correlate or to, you know, sort of link humans to angels, but actually to distinguish between humans and angels and to say that we're, you know, totally different beings. Um, and nonetheless, what God desires on Yom Kippur is the praise of, of humans, not angels. Um, um, that's a very different tone than what God wants us to do on Yom Kippur is to be 
angelic, right? It's actually about being human, not being about angelic. Um, and, you know, I gave you a whole bunch more of the liturgy here, which I'm not sure we have to read together all right now, but even as you just, if, you, if later at your leisure, if you sort of flip through, um, you know, the coming liturgy thereafter, you know, the whole notion of reciting the Kedusha um, is framed in the daily liturgy, but it's really highlighted, I think, in the Yom Kippur liturgy as being an angelic act, right? So we're leading up to the Kedusha here, and we have it both ways. Some of our Piyotim lead up to the Kedusha by saying, those are angels, right? And we know, that, we know even that we're stealing their words, but really you want it from the humans. And other lines, it sounds like we're, you know, like we, like we normally say that the angels do this, and therefore, therefore we too will do it, basically. Right? Just like those above do it, so too we shall do it, do it below. And we also will give praise. Um, but then, of course, you have the Tokef, right? which is the Tokef at the, at the end, um, you know, the part about how you know, it talks about our mortality and frailty and uh, how ephemeral we are, etc., etc. So there's this like, dance in the liturgy, um, especially if you, take a, if you pay attention to Eshe'i Matacha, a dance in the liturgy between framing ourselves as angels and framing ourselves as actually not angels, right? Actually, actually as, as humans. Um, my, yeah, my friend, uh, you know, Mishtiom, he wrote a piece, and I, I, he pointed out that in, in, I think in the, in the minion that he used to attend in Jerusalem, I think probably the leader of minion, um, um, they used to actually recite uh, this piece by Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen's song, which um, I was listening to yesterday. It's pretty beautiful. If it be your will, right? Playing off, of, playing off of "May it be your will." You, know, you hear it so, and so if it be your will, um, if it be your will that I speak no more, and my voice be still as it was before, I will speak no more. I shall abide until I'm spoken for. If it be your will, if it be your will that a voice be true from this broken hill. Uh, so, you know, from this brokenness I will sing to you, from this broken hill. All your praises they shall ring, if it be your will to let me sing from this broken hill. So he's, you know, he's talking it from the brokenness, even in the next, part, in the next line, you know, looks the column, draws near, bindeth tight, all your children here, and their rags of light, and their rags of light all dressed to kill. It's the funny thing, Yom Kippur. Um, um, the rags of light, so Mish points out, might be a reference to the Midrash, right, of, um, of, uh, of Kothnot Or, right, of uh, Midrash says that they wore uh, an Aden, or God dressed them not in leather, but uh, ra- leather clothing, rather, li- you know, light, clothing of light, so he reads it as rags of light. So what he's stressing here, Cohen, is, you know, the hesitancy, the if it be your will, and, you know, creating the God from this broken hell, coming up to God from brokenness and from frailty, from humanity. Um, so you put it when you put it together, you know the overall question. Therefore, is you know are we trying to be angels or trying to be humans? You know, I think the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing I was we were going with the past few weeks about the desert is about being, to my mind at least, being about being very very human. Um, it's actually like not where the angels are. The angels actually don't give the Torah down to the human. And at the same time, we act um, angelic. And you know, what is that really? What is that really really about? Um, um, even, by the way, I was thinking last night, even the tradition, the tradition of the Jewish people to adopt certain, or some communities to adopt certain, we call chumrah, that is to say, to adopt certain stringencies on the ten days of repentance, which they don't normally normally adopt. Um, 
and, you know, uh, in various ways, right? To, to take on an extra stringency during these period of time, period, period of time. What's that? What's that about, right? I mean, like as we, as, as every child asks, but God knows that you're not doing that before, you're not doing that after. So what do you, what are you like bribing God for ten days? I'll, I'll, ten days I won't eat that. Ten days I'll do it. It's, 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 it's bizarre. Um, so what I was wondering actually is if, um, is if. Um, we can hold both by being being angelic, but also being extremely, extremely human um, at the same time, and make sense of this host of customs and halachot and liturgy um, as a distinction between um, um, both, uh, on the one hand, a sort of a description of who we are, or coming to terms, a recognition of our of who we are, um, and tshuva coming out of that, out of actually looking ourselves in the mirror um, and training ourselves. Um, to um, uh, to be a broken hill, to be a valley, to be dependent, to be vulnerable. When our whole lives—well, I should say our whole lives—but much of our lives are spent trying to avoid that that notion, right? Both in terms of accretion of assets and psychologically in other ways, which is healthy, right? Right? Halacha doesn't want you to not eat and drink all year. It doesn't want you to not wear shoes, right? But there are times where it wants you to step back from that. Um, so, on the one hand, Yom Kippur's tone is actually about. Um, even starting from the day before, but it's about encountering our vulnerability, etc., and being human, all too human. Um, as the Kutzker said, right, uh, you know, I don't need, uh, you know, holy angels, I need holy people, right, you should be holy people, I have enough holy angels. Um, and the other hand, Yom Kippur also, um, the practices of Yom Kippur um, um, uh, model for us a sort of aspiration, as we enact aspirational, you know, aspirations of ourselves, dreams of ourselves, and we, we, all, we know that we're not angelic, we know that we're not uh, actually angels, but we, we, we train ourselves a one day a year at least uh, to try to be a little more angelic um, and, and to imagine ourselves, what would it be like if indeed, though we are a broken hill, though we are you know, dwellers of the valley, what would it be like to actually be a little more angelic? Could we actually, you know, get there? Could we eat the mana, you know? So the mana not only has not only has dependence, but also has lechem abirim, as the food of the mighty. Um, what would it be like actually if we at least, you know, if we at least one day a year, right, we sort of created a world in which is shalom? What would that be like actually? What happens? What happens when you don't eat and drink, right? Where you're just you're not there. You're in a different place. What would it be like if you're actually you go to the mikvah and you're you're actually enacting, right, an attempt to be pure? Um, so in a way, it's a stage, right? But it's it's a didactic stage, as to say. It, an attempt to um, uh, show ourselves, we show ourselves, right, um, the, uh, the potential in us to be a little more angelic than we may have thought. May have thought. Um, and I think that's one way of, uh, for me, helpful, helpful understanding of what's going on here, rather than sort of just bifurcating. Some, some sources go towards human, sometimes some you know, things go towards angel. It's not one, it's all in the same liturgy, it's all the same day, the same people who are doing this but there's just different moments in the course of that day. Um, and neither of them are about false, you know, about false pretensions. Or actually, one is about trying to describe ourselves as we are, and one is trying uh, as we really are. And there's a claim being made that what you really are are dependent. And the other one is trying to make a claim that what you really could be or aspire to be is something, if not angelic, then a little bit less than angelic. Um, something, you know, something other. And in fact, you know, Vavita Tehila and that, you know, and Vihitila Tasa, that actually, that actually is the praise of Yom Kippur, this praise of God in Yom Kippur, that God wants the, that being who, like, 
is pulling both poles um, and, uh, and attempts to do that. So with that... Um, the aspiring to be angels in, in terms of the things that angels do that we should want to do, like being totally at God's command, being totally ready to serve God. That's right, you know, that's not right. Not necessarily that we aspire to be angels so that we don't have to... We don't to have bodies, because you know, those things do remind us of our vulnerability. Yeah, nothing's a point. It's a point well taken. I, I have, I've wondered for a long time. I have to admit whether or not in the liturgy, when the liturgy describes kula mahovim whenever the liturgy describes angels, right, um, or beyond the liturgy, when we describe angels, it was that, is that meant to be exemplary? Does it say that we're meant to imitate them, or is it meant to describe our difference from them? I guess it's just coming out here today, and uh, today, I guess only. Recently, I've sort I've sort of thought about it as sometimes this, sometimes that, and maybe they actually can work together in a way, right? Um, actually, recognizing your vulnerability allows you to imitate the positive aspects of angels, if you will, um, and uh, and that's maybe that's part of the Yom Kippur. So that's we. That's why that midrash is so powerful about Moshe arguing that the Torah is not meant to be given to the angels. Angels don't have families, so they can't obey their parents. Angels don't eat, so they can't be tempted by food. We have all those human temptations, so the Torah. We need the Torah. Exactly. The Torah for us, so. You know, in a way, does that make us less than angels? Or does that make us superior to angels? Right, right, exactly, exactly. So this, the, the, clean, the, the bold claim, if you will, about Sherry Matecha is that that makes us, I don't know, superior, but it makes our praise superior, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And I'll say, by the way, in closing, that, um, that we've so, in closing two things. One is that, just to summarize it, in the past few weeks, what I've tried to do is share some reflections, you know, I've been thinking over the past few years about, you know, what these unim are about, um, and offer a few different framings, whether it be about vulnerability, whether it be about the desert, whether it be about Shabbos, whether it be about um, being angelic, whether it be about being human, all too human, etc. Um, um, the, I think all are possible framings which are out there, and I, and I just offer them because for me, framings are very powerful in terms of affecting what is, so I want to share that. Um, and I also want to say that this distinction between describing what is and us aspiring to be else and something else, um, it correlates with our tradition, as you know, of Kol Nidre, because as you may well know, and then I'll end it with this, there's different versions of Kol Nidre, right? Kol Nidre where we, you know, annul vows. Lots to say about Kol Nidre, by the way, but... Um, but uh, for now, you know, there's two traditions, as you may know. One is to, talk, to, to look at Kol Nidre and to recite um, a uh, confession, or we're going to call it a Kol Nidre text, which focuses on the past vows and says, may all those past vows be annulled. And then the other one, uh, I think it's Scripture of Enotam, um, the great uh, Tosephus, um, where the Kol Nidre actually is meant to um, 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 preemptively, right, preemptively, um, annul um, any future vows, which I may say during the course of this coming year. So, what some congregations do, of course, is to combine the two of them together, right? From the past Yom Kippur to this Yom Kippur, and from this Yom Kippur to the further Yom Kippur. We try to do both. And what we're trying to, I mean, if, in a way, it's kind of parallel to what I was saying before, this to say that both we describe where we're coming from. Who we are. We've made we've made vows in some way or another. We've made commitments. We've made vows. We've tried to be X and we haven't. Right? Um, Nedir as a metaphor for things beyond Nedir. Um, and uh, we that's inevitable. That's what it is to be. That's what that's what we do. <laughs> um, and uh, we want to uh, you know sort of address that and also to look forward though at the same time and to say that to sort of aspire to a year, right, in which there'll be no 
um, vows articulate, no commitments made, which are not fit, which are not fit. Now we know we won't do that, so we try to annul them, but nonetheless, you try to like, you know, preemptively aspire towards a, 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 clean, a clean year ahead, a pure year ahead. And in a way, that Carlos sort of saying be a parallel, it's parallel to what I said before about, you know, people are both about describing who you are and aspiring to be other. So when we describe ourselves in purity, um, we're aspiring to purity. Um, etc. Okay, with that, I wish everything a Mark Fatima Tzavara and a happy, uh, healthy new year and a uh, good 48 hours. And uh, okay, thank you. Thank you.